I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. Cue the lights. Hello. So what we have news today is that uh, Salesforce might be looking to buy Slack. Slack stock has jumped up 25% uh, to about $37 a share, giving them you know, a, a market cap of a little over $20 billion. Um, if you're not familiar with Slack, they actually IPO'd at $37. So they're pretty much back at where they opened and they've kind of been down ever since IPOing in June of, um, actually, I think they actually did a direct listing, uh, if memory serves me correctly, but they started trading their shares on a public exchange in June of 2019. And now the rumor is that Salesforce is looking to buy them. Usually, you know, what that rumor means is that actual terms have been exchanged and, and a deal is being close to actually closing. Uh, not that, you know, the, that they're actually much farther down the process if, if it's being leaked now. Or there could be other, you know, maybe the deal is actually close to blowing up and someone is trying to kind of pressure one side or the other. Who knows? But that's the rumor. Uh, we'll see if it comes true. This is not, I mean, this is kind of a drop in the bucket for Salesforce. They have about a $225 billion market cap. Their stock is actually down a little over 4% on the news. You know, the interesting thing is that we've actually seen Salesforce try to make a lot of moves into this kind of more connected, uh, collaborative type of, you know, products for a while now. Look what they've been doing with Chatter and other products, right, to get kind of expand deeper into the organization beyond just the sales force. Um, so, you know, at a very high level, you know, I could see this actually benefiting um, Salesforce a lot. Just goes back to just that platform conglomerate type of power. Uh, Salesforce's big platform model is that development platform that uh, third-party developers can build software um, that plug into you know the Salesforce product and help you do things like manage your data better if you're an enterprise and you have all your CRM data in there. Different um, you know actual tools that can help you do you know your marketing better, right? So there's kind of like data cleansing tools in the development platform for Salesforce. There's kind of you know uh, um, utility-based software tools. It can help bring additional functionality that complement what Salesforce is providing you out of the box. That portion of Salesforce's business, that platform revenue, is over a billion dollars in revenue for Salesforce overall. And it actually is, you know, their highest margin category. Um, and they're only doing about $17 billion in revenue, Salesforce is. So it's it's also one of their fastest growing. Uh, parts of the business, this kind of app store revenue that, that Salesforce is taking. So we've chronicled that a lot. This would be now a separate platform model, a communication platform that runs alongside the development platform, um, which is, you know, I would say, again, Salesforce has tried to to get into this kind of communication collaboration space on their own to maybe, you know, measured success so far. Um, strategically, you know, just on the blush of it, it makes sense to me. The market isn't reacting too kindly to it, but Slack 
You know, Slack does have a lot of competition from Microsoft and Microsoft and Salesforce definitely do, you know, go head to head in a number of areas when it comes from, you know, an enterprise sales standpoint. Um, the other big competitor to Slack is um, Atlassian. Their stock is unchanged right now. They're also in Plat. All, all three of these, Salesforce is in Plat, Slack is in Plat, uh, Team is in Plat. These are pretty much the players in, in the space. So interesting to see where this goes. Next topic, though, is Instacart. We've talked about this before, that Instacart's play is, you know, they just raised this big chunk of money. Uh, earlier this year, they are expanding horizontally. And what that means is going into other uh, verticals, other retail verticals, uh, namely at the time we were talking about liquor sales, drugs, so pharmacy sales, um, things that you need same day, right? Everyone needs their booze same day. So, and their drugs same day. So, Instacart's going to give you that. So, they're making a big push into that, you know, into those markets for same day goods. And now with this news here, they are launching with Best Buy, a, which what's interesting here is a certified delivery, uh, which is pretty interesting. So same day delivery service from a thousand stores. I think they've been testing this, you know, in a few locations. And now I guess it's gone well enough that they are rolling it out nationally or, you know, to a thousand stores. These things just don't automatically roll out to a thousand stores. You know, you do a small test, you pilot it, you see how it goes. If it goes well, boom. Everyone likes it. Then you you expand it much more aggressively. Uh, so that's what we're seeing here. Um, Instacart also unveiled something similar with Sephora in uh, September to go to 500 of Sephora stores, and Seven uh, Eleven is another one. So again, we're seeing kind of Instacart just span out um, into this model horizontally. You know, I think the other thing that we've heard through the rumor mill is that. You know, you look at Instacart's business, I mean, they were barely profitable with the COVID bump. I mean, barely profitable with the COVID. Like you couldn't have a better, a better environment uh, for the Instacart model with the shutdowns in March and April and all that stuff. So that and even with that, over 50% volume of the digital grocery orders at that peak, barely profitable. Um, you know, the challenge is that they're just buying from the retailer. And they're just layering in this delivery fulfillment solution on top of the retailer. Now, they have a lot of growth and it's now you know, worth tens of billions of dollars and that's wonderful for them. But how do you make money? Um, and you know, the rumor we've heard is that Instacart is looking to uh, actually take inventory. And unless they take inventory, they aren't able to really get much of a margin, right? You can't, they can't eke out a margin. They're just reselling what's in the store. Initially, Instacart was putting margin, margin stacking on top of, you know, I bought it from the retailer for a buck. I'm selling it to you for, for a buck 20 and I'm charging my delivery and service fee on top. As they've scaled, the, the margin stacking and, and, and that, you know, has had to go away which has hurt their ability to really monetize. They've been able to get a lot of growth and traction and all this, and they're expanding horizontally. Wonderful. But again, how do you get margin? And unless you really own product, linear, linear, right? Not marketplace, not platform, linear, own product. So we've heard through the, through the rumor mill that they might actually be interested in trying to um, more aggressively launch their own, say, Kind of like mini grocery store, and why this is interesting is the 
this startup that like to me kind of came out of nowhere uh, called GoPuff. Does anyone use GoPuff? They've raised over a billion dollars. Like, who has used this company? I haven't. Um, they've raised over a billion dollars. I feel like they came out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, what kind of name is that? Go Puff. Uh, you wouldn't think it's for everyday goods, but whatever. Um, these guys are like an Instacart competitor, and apparently they have more of a hybrid, you know, they where they actually take possession of certain inventory and are offering that in a vertical, right, vertically integrating, competing more directly with the grocers um, that are sellers on the GoPuff marketplace, right? So, you know, would Instacart follow in more of a GoPuff model, vertically integrate, take possession of inventory, give that inventory priority placement, uh, you know, in the Instacart app and, and more aggressively compete against other grocers? Yeah, I could see that happening. It makes sense. You just can't get margin with the business. So they're expanding horizontally they got to have the growth story but where's the profit coming from i think i think they eventually need to have more of a hybrid linear and and marketplace model so we'll see see where that goes um next topic here is around uh this kind of wealth transfer topic so you know on the show uh i've you know i talk a lot about i just feel like there's this general sentiment that um, Americans are stupid. And it, it could be any citizen, right? Just people are stupid, people are sheep, you know, and, and, and they're treated that way inappropriately. And what do I mean by that? Well, you got big tech content platforms censoring people um, and, and, you know, needing to be the filter for what people are allowed to see or not, right? I mean, why do you do that unless you don't think that people can make up their own minds and make up their own opinions, right? Uh, people have a brain. People can figure out rational reasoning for themselves. Why is society trying to limit the, the media and the information and the content that we consume, trying to limit our civil liberties, uh, whether you, know, you see these shutdowns and, and all these provisions being made on businesses and how they can operate? During the pandemic, there are multiple Supreme Court justices now that have issued memos saying that they think they've seen an unprecedented level of just unconstitutional uh, limitations of our, you know, basic freedoms and rights and civil liberties as citizens of the United States of America. And one of the repercussions of that is this. This guy does a nice job. He's an entrepreneur of some sort. I don't, I haven't followed this guy too closely, but you know, he sums it up nicely. Amazon profit up 100%. Walmart up 80. Target up 80. Lowe's up 74. You know, big tech monopolies, it stocks at record highs. Small businesses, 21% closed. Revenue for the rest of them are down 30%, right? And then he talks about the wealth increase for the founders of these companies, Amazon, Google, right? And he says, small businesses collectively have lost over $200 billion. We're witnessing a record wealth transfer. It's the numbers might, might not be exactly right, but conceptually, the topic is absolutely spot on. What you see when you see civil liberties encroached upon is you see the small guy taken advantage of, small guy in this case being small businesses, and you see the larger ones that 
you know, have better lobbying, have better access to government officials, you know, can make a better case to be essential, whatever it is, skirt the rules, get special privileges. You see, particularly tech monopolies, um, you know, being a huge beneficiary in this environment where you have lockdowns, where you have government arbitrarily deciding who can stay open and at what capacity and who has to close and all this stuff, right? You know, we've seen unprecedented restriction for uh, places of worship to conduct, you know, their business. Um, and it's really disconcerting to see in, you know, in a nation that prides itself on freedom, on independent thought, on giving people the power and choice, right? How do you enable and empower and educate people and let them make up their mind? That is what this country is founded on. And it seems so unfortunate that instead we see um, big government, big tech, trying to further curtail uh, those freedoms. And as a result of that, the immediate impact is that you see, you see this in the stock market right now. Stocks, stocks are at record highs. Small businesses are suffering. Who owns these small businesses in these small communities, right? These are these are lifestyle businesses. These are families that have built these businesses for, for years and decades. And now you take this income away from, you know, they've put everything into this and what are they going to do? And now you got another wave of shutdowns here and you're taking the livelihood. You're taking that optionality. You're taking uh, that freedom away from the people to make the decision for themselves. And um, it's a really unfortunate thing to see. Platt's doing fantastically. I'm still shocked, honestly. We helped make the damn index. And I am shocked at how it just keeps going up. It just, it just keeps going up. 49%, 48.7% year to date. It keeps going up. I mean, I... You know, I'm the biggest advocate of all advocates for platform businesses, and I am still shocked at what's going on here. I mean, look at this. Since inception, 65%. This is from May of 2019. What have you seen with COVID? You've seen an acceleration of digital. You've seen businesses that have invested in digital, that have been ahead of the curve on digital, are obviously winning. Walmart, a prime example of more of an incumbent kind of comeback kid story, digital, really benefiting it. Small businesses though, small businesses don't have the resources to invest in digital, right? They can't hire engineers and right? it just, they can't do it. They need to rely on tools from other companies. You know, Shopify, I think is a great example. Fortunately, Shopify, you know, uh, Shopify, I think has been doing a great job helping to support small businesses. They, their stock has benefited tremendously from it. You know, I have a real interest personally, uh, from Applico standpoint in trying to say the next wave here, right? How can, how can you roll out digital tools to help small businesses? How can you have a win-win situation where that large incumbent enterprise can help small businesses uh, run their business better? And provide tools to these businesses separate from the large tech monopolies, right? I think this is a big opportunity. You know, I want to highlight more companies going forward that are doing this beyond a Shopify. There are a number of vertical specific players 
um, f- whether you're talking about food or you know B two B distribution, uh, contractors, you know that are running their own small business. Uh, you know, uh, you could have uh, uh, healthcare practices, right? Dentist shops, all these different small business practices. How can we give them more digital tools so they can stay local, but have a digital presence, have a digital mechanism to transact with customers, to communicate with customers? I think this is a huge opportunity. And I think a lot of these incumbents, whether they're retailers, whether they're B2B distributors, who do a lot of work in these spaces, can really can really help accelerate this, right? Provide tools to small businesses, whether those are retailers, whether those are contractors or small practices in these communities. We need to support these businesses and help, at least from a technology standpoint, try and help them be on par uh, or, or, or at least closer to par with what's happening with large tech monopolies that, you know, it's, you're, you're flirting with the devil if, if you're going to use the tool that Google or Amazon or fill in the blank tech monopoly gives you to help run your business better, right? I mean, as they get scale, eventually they turn the screws on you. We've chronicled this. Um, I can't chronicle it anymore. Uh, platforms take advantage of supply at scale when they get monopolistic, you know, power. It's the suppliers that suffer. In this case, that would be retailers, distributors, contractors, et cetera, on the supply side, not the consumer that gets taken advantage of. So um, we need alternative tools to be embraced by either incumbents uh, or other large enterprises that can help put more resources into these startups, into these companies that have tools. Not everyone's as big as a Shopify provide these tools down to the small businesses and really try and help give them at least a digital solution to be somewhat competitive. Um, Otherwise, we're just going to see this gap get bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's really, really unfortunate to see, you know, if you just think about kind of parity and, 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 and just this huge power swing, this huge wealth swing, which, which government and big government is not helping by any measure. Um, so it's uh it's just it's just very unfortunate. Another unfortunate repercussion here of what we're seeing going on is stuff going on in healthcare. I'll give you one positive and one kind of negative. Let's start negative. Let's end positive. How about that? Mental health benefits startup Spring Health raises 76 million dollars. What you are seeing is you're seeing a variety of other health repercussions because of what comes along with not interacting with humans and being shut down and all these kinds of things. One of which being uh, depression and and just mental health. Uh, This company, uh, Spring Health, they they had a raise in January for $22 million. They've raised almost $100 million in 2020 alone, right? They, there was $22 million in January. And because here, it's, you know, it's at the bottom of the article, the pandemic and other recent events have taken a toll on individuals' mental well-being. And we find that organizations are starting to really understand the importance of providing personalized mental health resources to their teams. Again, it's really sad to see there are a lot of people suffering um, in many ways beyond just the obvious with COVID because of this pandemic. And all the things that come with it, uh, mental health being a big factor here, um, you know, or you lost your job and now you, you know, you just economically are, 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 are in going a lot of hardship and what can you do? So this company has been on fire. They've been 
you know, huge demand for their services, raising now nearly $100 million in 2020 alone, just raised $22 million in January. Now they're raising $76 million. And that is clearly tied to the uptick in demand. Uh, and unfortunately, the uptick in just mental health issues and, and the need for services like this. So that's the negative. Positive. What's the positive? Where's the silver lining? Here's a silver lining. Uh, this company, Medible, getting $91 million to accelerate the industry shift to digital and decentralized clinical trials. Uh, they've now raised over $135 million in total, including this $91 million. Their revenues grew more than 500% in 2020. The funding has come at a critical time as Medible has played a pivotal role enabling clinical trials during the COVID-19 pandemic, facilitating the continuation of existing research via remote care, as well as accelerating development of vaccines and therapeutics for COVID-19. The platform provides a unified experience for patients and clinicians enabling recruitment, remote screening, electronic consent, clinical outcomes assessment, um, ECOA, we're going to talk about that, e-source telemedicine connected devices. What does that mean? Okay, here's what it means. The way clinical trials have been run in the past is uh, very archaic, manual, labor-intensive. So here's how it works. You need to have two groups of people. Uh, you have your population that you're actually going to give the therapeutic or the vaccine to, and then you have another group where you give them a placebo. They think they're getting the medication, but they're not. So you have a base group and you have a group that's actually getting the medication. You have two populations, you give them the medication and one the fake medication, and you compare. And that is basically how clinical trials are run. So historically, all these people, you know, you have to recruit. This thing talks about helping to recruit. You have to find these patients. And they need to fit, you know, particular, you need to find a similar population. We're talking hundreds of people, sometimes thousands. You need to find all these people with similar health parameters. And then you need to find a physician, what they call kind of a, an, an, an investigator site. Um, and that's a doctor, a practice. And then those patients need to come into the doctor, re receive the medication regularly, and then be, um, you know, get this uh, clinical outcome assessment, right? Get these regular check-ins to see how the patient is doing. All that means, A, very hard to find these people because of HIPAA, very difficult to get people's health information. You need to enlist the support of third parties to find these people for recruitment, to find the doctors and the investigator sites to actually, you know, run the trial and, and administer the 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 medicine and and track the performance of the patients. Enter digital. Now what they're trying the shift is now saying how do we give digital tools to the patients to do this remote, uh, you know, this remote process. It's kind of what they're dubbing like ECOA, um, which basically stands here for electronic clinical outcome assessment a method of capturing data electronically in clinical trials. How novel. So, you know, they list here all the different things here that you can now do electronically, right? Um, patient diary, tool used to collect subjective data from a patient. You can do that electronically. Traditionally, this was paper-based. Uh, so now you have the electronic patient diary. Um, you know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but these are like very big steps for the clinical trial 
uh, and, and pharmaceutical industry. The clinical outcome assessment, measurement used to evaluate patient safety and quality of life, um, health outcome, measurement you know, based on different things, right? This is done in person. Now they have the electronic clinical outcome assessment using technologies such as handheld devices, tablets, or web, web portals to allow patients, clinicians, and caregivers to directly report outcomes, resulting in more granular endpoint data. Sometimes you get better data this way, right? Like you can have an Apple Watch on, always be tracking you. Uh, ECOA measures include all these different um, electronic versions of these things, which are the traditional things that are usually done in person, in hand, right? That kind of stuff. So now what does that mean you can do? Well, hopefully you can have a broader pool of patients um, that aren't near an investigator site that could participate, right? If they don't need to come in every week, they can come in once a month. Now you can have just a much broader pool of people, kind of a pain to come in once a week, right? Or possibly more. It's also less expensive because now you have less in-person doctor visits, right? So it's less money to administer the clinical trial. So it's cheaper for recruitment because you've got a broader pool of participants to, to, that can be qualified to be in the clinical trial. Cheaper to actually run the clinical trial, less in-person doctor visits. And here's the holy grail. The holy grail is this thing called power. But power is saying this is really a statistical uh, thing. Any, any calculus nerds, anyone like taking calculus uh, back in school? How many people do you need to participate in the trial that if you get data, right, from 30 people, just making the number up, 30's kind of been a statistical like number for certain studies, right? You can get within like one standard deviation of confidence, that kind of stuff. Um, not saying the number is 30, just using it as an example, okay. But can you have less people in the trial by using digital tools, getting more regular data checkups, right? Getting, diff tracking different things electronically, right? Can I have less people in the trial and still achieve power, which is that confidence threshold to say, yeah, you know, I had X number of people in the trial and, and now I'm confident that this drug should be approved by the FDA, you know, to be dispersed and, 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 and be used by people. That's the holy grail. So not only can you get these incremental cost savings and recruitment and, administer, and administering the actual trial, but now if you can achieve this power with less participants, now you are materially lowering the cost and also, by the way, speeding up um, the process to run a clinical trial. That's the holy grail. COVID, Operation Warp Speed, all this stuff has been, has really been a, not more than a shot in the arm to really drastically kind of uh, shake down the old process for running clinical trials as evidenced by, you know, this fundraise here by companies like Medible. And I expect there are others and, and will be others hopefully to, to follow suit. It's a big deal. Um, so that's the positive news, right? With this pandemic, in general, we have seen um, just digital behaviors, right, uh, be accelerated. And, and, and these highly regulated industries like clinical trials being forced to embrace digital and embrace new ways of doing things. And um, fortunately, there have been tech startups that are there 
been kind of waiting for this moment and have been able to now work and really help bring that along. So um, that's some of the positive. Just, you know, so much change going on now. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll try our best to keep you abreast of everything that's going on. Thank you so much for joining us today on Winner Take All. Talk to you next week.